Greetings, I'm Dave Gilmore, and this is Design Intelligence. We're in Washington, D.C., continuing our series, Demystifying the Infrastructure Bill. And today, we're speaking with James Riley. Jim is a senior policy advisor at Venable and the former chief of staff of Senator Tom Carpers. He is an experienced leader and skilled strategist with a track record of creating practical, bipartisan solutions to climate, infrastructure, energy, and environmental issues. He'll share his thoughts about why the Build Back Better Act failed to pass, where there is still hope for any of its parts or pieces, and the important climate issue that isn't getting a lot of attention in the public media. Welcome to this edition of This is Design Intelligence, conversations with leadership voices in the built environment. You've worked on Capitol Hill for many years. You've had some work that you've done abroad as a senior policy advisor. You've been in this city for a while, and you've gotten to see the dynamics of how things occur. What are your greatest concerns about us being able to be successful in the intentions? Because I believe the intentions are sincere, and therefore they can yield right and good and true outcomes for us as a nation and, and for individuals. But I'm guessing because of the work you've done over the years that you also have some concerns about how this gets done and what might prevent us from finding the right and good and true out of all of this. One of the safest places to be in Washington is in a program that already exists. And much of the infrastructure programming that we're seeing in the infrastructure bill, the bipartisan infrastructure framework, much of that is tied to previous programs. And I think that many of those need additional support. That that bill is a five-year extension. So it's not that those programs should be cut off. But my, my concern, David, is the opportunity for innovation is, is severely limited when you are doing something in a five-year chunk. And much of that five-year chunk, it's almost baked in that it's going to mostly use the previous five years. And so if we wanted to, say, start with the white sheet of paper and design it from scratch, the current federal program structure is not going to do that. So my, my worry is less about what's going to happen and more about what's not going to happen. I, I also worry the ability for the systems in, that are required to move these policies and dollars out to the ground uh, to move as quickly as they need to at the scale that they need to is a challenge for them, and therefore it's a challenge for us. Your colleague, Fred Wagner, was making a point on one of our episodes when asked, you know, if you could do it, what would you do? He he really uh, said something very wise, in that it, which relates to what you were just saying, which is if we had shorter uh, spans or sprints to prove the efficacy of things, that that would then build the case for some of the longer journeys that might might occur. And it, it seems like we're more inclined towards uh, the big splash. You know, here's the money, go make it happen, and God help us all if it actually occurs, right? As opposed to piloting opportunities and being really close to watch those pilots and measure and tweak and change and make the adjustments and then scale that pilot to the next iteration and then do it like that. It just seems commonsensical 
but as somebody said long ago, common sense is not so common. I, I wish that we could learn that lesson from our past in how we approach these type of massive spending allocations and and say, let's set the money over here, but let's use this period of time, whether that's a two- or three-year period, to pilot a series of targeted projects that are micro in scale, that can literally sprint and be done in a year, not 10 years, and let's measure the effect of those and then scale that. And I think there are places where that is happening. The, the, the states, in many cases, are given that opportunity. But but you're right. That's that's a minority it's of a, the, the exception of the to the rule. And yeah. something you said earlier applies here too. In that the congressional cycle is is two years for the for the House, obviously four years for the White House, six years for the Senate. But what that means is that the the federal programs are often designed or deployed in such a short time period that they might meet the congressional calendar, but they don't meet the calendar of need right beyond oh, Congress. Great delineation. And I, I did not go to business school. Um, I, I did not stay at a Holiday Inn Express last night, but I, I do know that in my work with corporations, they many of them have balanced the need for both a quarterly report metric but also a long-term health of the corporation. And, and, and that, that can work for them. Th- there are members of Congress who, for various reasons, either do or are able to take the long view. But, but I think the majority would agree with me that there are fewer of those members in office today than there were 30 years ago or 50 years ago when some of these foundational provisions that we talked about were first passed. So it, it might be interesting for people or, or for even the audience to have a discussion of how many programs remain on the books, federal programs remain on the books from decades past that were championed by members of Congress who are no longer in office, but have now been replaced by an almost virtually identical program pushed by a current member of Congress who thought there was no such program. So, so you know, th- that's another issue of this layering of new federal programs on top of initiatives that may have already been in place that pretty much did the same thing. But the question is, does this current Congress have awareness of that? Do those legacy programs still receive funding? Th- they, they may or may not. You know, again, so there could be redundancy. The current Congress does the appropriations, so they're going to fund what they feel is important for, for them and for their constituents. And they are also surrounded by the discussion of the current authorization. So that's that's where the, the bulk of the attention is at the moment. I was reading an article recently in the Wall Street Journal that Peggy Noonan had put out. She was talking about the wonder of the bipartisan bill that was passed, the $1.2 trillion physical infrastructure bill, and then was saying that this administration had stretched little too far trying to swing for the fences a second time without having bipartisan support, I guess supposing that the momentum of the first bill would carry the second bill, and of course it failed. At the end of the day, you know, I think her reference was you you win more from singles and doubles than you always do from home runs. And it seems like if that bill, Build Back Better, had been dissected into a series of pieces that it could have been assembled over the next three or four years, as opposed to trying to make it all happen at once. And what do you think about that? Is that is that rational in that thinking? I think time will have to tell us that. 
the way the way I see it, the the new administration came to town, and I think understandably, and, and had they not laid out a a vision, and a vision that included a high degree of ambition, I think they would be criticized for not doing that. People look to leaders to lead into the future, and I think that this administration took that seriously. How you move that vision of ambition, which also includes within the ambition a lot of reality, how you move that through the legislative process is is not easy, and it's what we're here to talk about. I think that as I read the tea leaves and listen to people on Capitol Hill and in the administration where they are processing what happened last fall and thinking about what can happen this year, several things haven't changed. One, the the needs that that administration laid out, the needs that that administration sought to address remain. The hurdles in Congress are now possibly even higher than they were, or at least the realization of what those hurdles are is clearer. And you take those two things and say, how do we move forward? I, I see pieces of it that remain popular, not just among a majority of Democrats, but also some portion of Republicans as being the first thing that they're going to come back to. Timing on that, we can we, we can discuss, and the exact shape of that, I would like to discuss. But you know, to your to your question of did the original plan to lay out a significant, we used the word transformative in some of our earlier discussions, vision, was that the right thing? Let's talk about this in a couple of years and decide what actually gets done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. I, I think that it was critical for this administration to enter office with a transformative vision of what they wanted to do. They, they, they want an election. They need to make something out of that election, out of that win, right? But their strategists seem to be short-sighted that you're running on such a narrow margin, particularly in the Senate, that it requires more than a big bulldozing, exciting campaign. It does require strategic finesse to be able to navigate the many rocks along the way, both within their party as well, of course, with the opposing party. And it seemed that short-sightedness got them, caught them, and they didn't see it. So I'm hoping that now we're in a new year, we're in the second year of this administration, that instead of trying to maneuver around that, that they're stepping back and say, what lessons did we learn in this first year? And how can we better create a more win-win-win collaborative set of decision intersections as we move this along? Because you're right, Jim, the, the major societal problems that are more than just problems, they're almost bordering on crises in many cases, are still in place. And we are applying a a very shallow solutions to them unless something transformative is put into place. I'm I'm not going to tell anybody something they don't know, but the approach that the founding fathers laid out of a four-year presidential term versus something else, I think is important to note here that this is just the freshman year. And I I know that I didn't do my best work in freshman year of college. I I did quite well, but I I got better with each year. And um, I'm not suggesting that the administration is is a freshman with with no background. But um, as they've brought all of the tools together, as their cabinet and and other appointees have been confirmed, I I think that first year, there's there's a lot of learning um, and return to muscle memory for some of those key players that should now be tuned. And as they go into this next year and beyond, I think they will 
they're certainly not giving up. To your point, there's still a lot of need that they are looking to address. And they've had a lot of success. We've spoken about the bipartisan infrastructure bill, which in and of itself is a significant advancement and helps to address many of the challenges in the infrastructure space. So now the question is, what else can happen? And some of what needs to happen will be what happens not only with this looking at what remains of the social infrastructure bill, but going back and looking at the infrastructure bill itself. And did they get it right? Are are there pieces there that need to be looked at again, changed given we're now in a new year, changed given we might not get the social infrastructure piece that some viewed as a partner to that? So I expect this to, during the course of this year, to still be a front and center topic. It will not be the only topic that Washington tries to address or has to address. I think you're absolutely correct. And and, and looking at the physical infrastructure bill uh, that is now law, is there a possibility now that it has passed of being able to make appropriate adjustments to how that gets executed or is it poured in cement already? No, it's a good question. No, it is not poured in cement. But the the bill lays out the ingredients and the recipe, I would say, for the policy. As the years to come, each of the appropriation bills that will come that actually fund the portions of the infrastructure bill, as those are laid out and uh, guidance, additional guidance from the appropriation committees is laid on top of what was in the infrastructure bill, that's where you'll be able to see some adjustments. A. B. And this is happening today, and I think it's important that people are shifting to pay attention to this, is the guidance and responsibility that is given to the departments. So Department of Transportation or Department of Energy, they are now writing the fine print, so to speak, of the infrastructure bill, where the precise guidelines as they apply to states or federal projects that are funded by the infrastructure bill that's where I think people still have an opportunity to weigh in, pay attention to the details, make sure that any issues that Congress might not have had time to focus on to the fine enough point that is necessary for a project in New York City or a project in Miami. I, I want to make sure people are paying attention to the opportunities for comment and requests for information that the agencies are issuing now uh, and will continue to issue over the next quarter. A few of the funds have already started to move, but I think the real bulk of it will start moving later this year based on some of this guidance. That's fantastic. So I'm hoping the public will more engage in that conversation, that dialogue. That will be really important to us. I'd like to talk a little bit about climate crisis and what's happening in this bill. The infrastructure bill speaks uh, partially to addressing things around electric grid uh, electric vehicle charging stations. Uh, it addresses partially our water system, all of which are indirect implications or hopeful positive implications to where we are as a climate and what's happening. But Jim, I just don't, I just don't see the focus, the radical attention that is necessary from our Congress and certainly our administration to be able to really tackle this problem. I, I was at my hotel this morning on my way before I came over to spend this time with you. I was listening to an interview that was with the most recent CEO of General Motors, and she was touting that they will, the General Motors will be the dominant electrical uh, vehicle manufacturer in the United States by 
sooner than later, as she put it, and um, that by 2035, which is 13 years approximately from now, that's all the vehicles that they would produce. That's a pretty big statement to make, right? Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, it is a anecdote of, is that enough? Should we have done it quicker? Could it be done quicker? What are we doing in this government and around these massive bills to address the dynamics of climate crisis. It's not about climate change now. It's about truly crisis that we're watching occur. We have passed the the line where we already know that the warming of the earth is going to create wild things, but we're still kicking it down the road to another 10 or 15 years for most things and even pushing all the way down to 2050 in many cases. What are we doing about this from a governmental standpoint and how do these massive bills play or pretend to play as an answer to that? A role of government is to set signals for the market, both in the near and long term. And I think your reference to General Motors, to me, means that the market has been signaled to start producing lower carbon transportation. And General Motors is moving into that market, as are many others. Whatever happens today or a vehicle sold today doesn't affect the climate on the planet here in 2022. So I do share your your sense that more aggressive action sooner is needed to address the climate challenges of tomorrow. But what I think doesn't get enough attention, but is something that's in both the infrastructure bill and could be in additional federal bills, is focus on the adaptation and the resiliency required that are funded by federal dollars or are steered by federal dollars. It's been a couple of years, but there used to be much more discussion of the area here, not too far from Washington, D.C., in southern Virginia, Norfolk and Newport News, which is one of the largest U.S. naval installations in the world. It is also probably the most vulnerable to a rising sea level of any facility. And what is the government's opportunity and responsibility there to address that? And that has nothing to do with how are we controlling CO2 emissions across the world today, but it's about how are we protecting that infrastructure that's in place that, in the case of defense infrastructure, is is important for lots of reasons. Here in Washington, this area is actually quite low. Washington's mall, the National Mall, is an old creek bed and is subject to flooding and requires constant thought by architects and planners and operators to protect this area. And, and that's just, those are just two examples. So how are we, how is the government of this country looking at addressing both the long-term and the near-term issues around a changing climate? I think that a lot of the attention in the public media that I see is around the long-term solutions, which need to be solved. And those are only going to be solved with leadership from a, a government. But I also note there is there is attention and I think even greater need in the near term, near term being my lifetime, to adaptation and resiliency to deal with what is already going to change based on what has happened in the past. Yeah. I often think, why should my relative care about what Washington, D.C. is doing around infrastructure or climate? And you know, the, it's one of those, I think about my kids, it, it, who's going to clean up your room? Well, the only person that's going to clean it up 
is them because I'm not going to do it. And some of these challenges require people to make a decision in service of whether it's of the country or of the future. And I think those are those may not always be popular in the present or in every state or neighborhood, but sometimes I'm thankful that people made hard decisions on my behalf, even though I might not have appreciated it at the time. And I think that we're in a moment now where some difficult choices are being made and the results for the future are what will be used to measure whether they were the right decision. And those aren't blue or red decisions. Those are just decisions for for this country and decisions that affect other countries as well in many cases. The popularity or the trust of federal government is very low. There are reasons I understand why, but we don't have another option at the moment. And our responsibility is to make sure that what we're doing to keep this country in its leadership position, to keep it as a role model for the rest of the world, relies on bit of trust and people who are willing to do what they've been doing and work hard, people who are willing to bring great ideas, have them debated. Some of them will be right. Some of them will be wrong. Some of them might be right for today, but wrong for tomorrow or vice versa. But in in your world, David, with the the built environment, I I think one of the things that I I like so much about what you do is you you, you are part of an industry that is building for the future. You are making things and changing the way people live that will last beyond those of us who are here in the room today. And there's a lot of similarity in that, in what a a government is asked to do for its people. And so for you to be making sure that you understand and that your industry understands what the policies and forecasts of this government mean for for your industry is spot on. And I'm excited to see where where we all are in 50 years, but I think that the way you're going about it means we're going to be in a better place than we are. Thank you for joining us for this edition of This is Design Intelligence. The producer is Laura Spells. The sound engineer is Jared Knabel. This has been a DI Media Group production.